leave him alone. Maybe it's a secret love. Love should never be a secret. If you keep something as complicated as love stored up inside, it can make you sick. I finally got lucky in love. We both did. But it's hardly perfect. You have to work at it. I met him on the college steps and I knew it wasn't going to be easy. <laughs> he was studying science and I was studying English literature. That's right. I was trying to explain the theory of relativity. Mm -hmm. And Rosie was trying to explain T.S. Eliot. <laughs> I still don't understand what he was talking about. Oh, come on. I'm yes, serious. T.S. Eliot is more complicated than advanced science. <laughs> but if you want to get a woman to fall in love with you, feed her poetry. Poetry. Never fails. <laughs> Tall and slender lady, all alone upon a prairie, trying to screen all her garments. And her hair was like the sunshine. Day by day he gazed upon her. Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm your host, Matt Leck. With me is Alex Guns. Hello. And Grace Jackson. Hi. Uh, and today we are talking about the song of Hiawatha. Is oh, how, nice. That's how Henry Wadsworth Longfellow pronounced it. Uh -huh. Have you guys been pronouncing it wrong in your head the whole time? Me and the recording I listened to. Yeah, so. he, it's a great recording except for that part, but you know what? Can't win them all. Uh, I also have another name for it called uh, Indian Jesus. <laughs> That's what I like to That's call it. be like Wadsworth canceling himself. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's an 1855 uh, epic poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in trochaic tetrameter. Elks, mm -hmm. can you explain to us what that means? Well, so for poetry, there are different kinds of uh, meters. And meter is just a measurement of the amount of syllables and the stress that we put on syllables uh, in a given foot. And a foot is a line. So you may have heard of like iambic pentameter. That's the standard in uh, uh, English verse for the most part. Um, and for like an iamb is a metrical foot with an unaccented syllable followed by an accented syllable. And, you know, for the more romantic, you could say that's how your heartbeat works. You know, like, ba-bum, ba-bum. Like that. Mm, right. Um, oh, the more scientific. I mean, I, I'm a bit, I don't know. It's a little ethnocentric <laughs> of like, uh, of like English language to say that their verse is like a heartbeat, but I'll just leave it. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. The, uh, <laughs> let's see here. I'm going to look at the reference. Preposterous um, comment. <laughs> it is language of the heart. Okay. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Henry Rowe Schoolcraft was a sort of ethnographer that's mentioned in the intro. And he suggested that trochee might be uh, adaptable or similar to the Native American way of speaking. But almost certainly he was just, I mean, it's not entirely right. Well, I think it's like the cliche uh, like version or racist version of what we understand Native American language to be. Like, like, like where the stress is on the first syllable, where it's like, like, hey, oh, uh, no, 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 like that kind of thing. Is, uh -huh. Like you see in cartoons and stuff like that. Right, so right. So I think Longfellow is trying to imitate that with what is uh, trochee tetrameter, which is stressed syllable followed by an unstressed syllable. It's like the inverse of an iambic. Yeah, an iambic is sort of the main uh, sort of Western, that's the Shakespeare, right? That's yeah, yeah. But like he would use, so like, for example, like Shakespeare would use uh, trochee uh, for like, um, what is it, like the witches in Macbeth. Round about the cauldron go. 
in the poisoned entrails through, told that under cool stone, days and nights as thirty-one, sweltered venom, sleeping god, boil thou fast in the charmed pot. They would use okay. that kind of, and it's, I think it was like in, it was used in both Greek and Latin poetry as a way of like it's much uh, faster, or that's like the notion, right? That like if you use trochee, uh, uh, pantameter or trechameter or hexameter, it's like it has a rhythm to it that goes at a much faster pace than I am. Iambic. All right. Well, let's get into the intro a little bit so people can kind of hear um, after a while what this sounds like. Um, first, this is from this is from the LibriVox version of this is as you'll see we sort of already mentioned it. It's really well done um, by this reader. Um, the story of Hiawatha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Introductory Note The Song of Hiawatha is based on the legends and stories of many North American Indian tribes, but especially those of the Ojibwe Indians of northern Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. They were collected by Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, the renowned historian, pioneer explorer, and geologist. He was superintendent of Indian affairs for Michigan from 1836 to 1841. Schoolcraft married Jane Johnson, the woman of the sound which the stars make rushing through the sky. Jane was a daughter of John Johnson, an early Irish fur trader, and the woman of the green prairie, who was a daughter of Waub O'Jaig, the white fisher, who was chief of the Ojibwe tribe at La Pointe, Wisconsin. Jane and her mother are credited with having researched, authenticated, and compiled much of the material Schoolcraft included in his Algic Researches, 1839. A male ethnographer taking the credit for a lot of work uh, compiled by female research assistants? It doesn't seem like any artist we've come across. I don't think we'll see any more of that. <laughs> um, and a revision published in 1856 as The Myth of Hiawatha. It was this latter revision that Longfellow used as the basis for the Song of Hiawatha. Longfellow began Hiawatha on June the 25th, 1854. He completed it on March the 29th, 1855, and it was published November the 10th, 1855. As soon as the poem was published, its popularity was assured. However, it also was severely criticized as a plagiary of the Finnish epic poem Kalevala. Longfellow made no secret of the fact that he used the meter of the Kalevala, but as for the legends, he openly gave credit to Schoolcraft in his notes to the poem. I would add a personal note here. My father's roots include Ojibwe Indians. His mother, Margaret Caroline Davenport, was a daughter of Susan de Caro Davenport, Ogi Emakwa, the chief woman, whose mother was a daughter of Chief Waubojig. Finally, my mother used to rock me to sleep, reading portions of Hiawatha to me, especially Wawa Tesi, Little Firefly, Little Flitting White Fire Insect, Little Dancing White Fire Creature. Light me with your little candle, ere upon my bed I lay me, ere in sleep I close my eyelids. Woodrow W. Morris. It's true that uh, some Native American people did take to the Song of Hiawatha as sort of like, uh, you know, and learn the lines, which makes it sort of more of a pity that it wasn't more authentic. Um, yeah. 
Um, I, I've seen some sort of apologetics for this uh, based on that, but that's still that's not you know much of a defense really. Like, and and it's not the biggest question, but in terms of the cultural appropriation question, like yeah, yeah. The Song of Hiawatha, introduction. Should you ask me whence these stories, whence these legends and traditions? With the odours of the forest, with the dew and damp of meadows, with the curling smoke of wigwams, with the rushing of great rivers, with their frequent repetitions and their wild reverberations as of thunder in the mountains. I should answer, I should tell you, from the forests and the prairies, from the great lakes of the Northland, from the land of the Ojibways, from the land of the Dakotas, from the mountains, moors and fenlands, where the heron, the Shushuga, feeds among the reeds and rushes. I repeat them as I heard them from the lips of Nawadaha, the musician, the sweet singer. Should you ask me? So this is interesting. So he gets the, uh, we can just pause it here. He gets the narrative from a, a Native American singer. So it's a, a, a sort of more secondhand. Mm -hmm. Um, but to go back to the intro, you know, we've, and we've already seen the, the trochaic tetrameter that this is what this, that's what it sounds like here, this. Of Nawadaha, the musician, da -da -da -na 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 the sweet singer. That sort of thing. Yeah, if you want to tell, if the, a nice tell is if you uh, put your hand on your chin and then put your uh, elbow on the table, and then when your chin is pushing into your hand, that's the syllable that you're stressing. Yeah. Oh. I have to say, and, and that trochaic tetrameter was in the Kalevala, that Finnish poem uh, that I have a note here, basically helped lead to Finnish independence in 1970. So it came out in 1835 mm -hmm. and sort of helped build a sort of national identity in Finland. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow saw it because he was traveling in Europe. He spent a summer there, right? Yeah. He, after college, he went over there. After Bowdoin, he was another Bowdoin boy. Like, yeah, with uh, Hawthorne. Like Hawthorne. And uh, he goes over there, and he's like, "Man, this this Finnish this sort of national heritage poetry is really lighting the world on fire over here. I'm just going to do that in America." Yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, it does crush. Uh, by uh, 1857, it sold fifty thousand fifty thousand copies of the poem. That's such like an American uh, sentiment to be like, we need to get some of that uh, national identity or something, like that, something very specific to a time and place. America's like, yeah, we need that too. Well, that's that's that is America. Remember we watched that um, World's Fair uh, documentary on Netflix. It's not very well done. It's but, just yeah, I think it's just footage of the Chicago's World's Fair. But like, it's like, oh, we can build giant castles and stuff like that, and it, they build them like basically overnight with like early forms of um, like. Drywall material, and stuff. right? Yeah, super flammable, like low cost materials. Yeah, <laughs> and well, it's like my favorite, my my favorite like testament to that is up in the highest point in Manhattan. There's like the Cloisters Museum, and it's an entirely rebuilt medieval uh, monastery, mm -hmm. and you can just see that like it was built by. Um, Rockefellers and, and Vanderbilts in like the twenties. And you could just, you could see the machinations in their mind being like, well, we need a medieval monastery too. <laughs> yeah. Make it look older. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the famous one, the Neuschwanstein castle, that one in uh, Germany mm -hmm. that it, the, uh, that the Disney shit's based off yeah. of that was itself made to look older than it was actually during this time period. Basically, yeah, yeah. this is that romantic, this is romanticism of the, of the, uh, 19th century. Uh, this is from the New York Times, originally published December 28th, 1855. And it's called Longfellow's Poem, uh, The Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And it goes into sort of 
the history of the uh, epic or the saga. They call it the Edda. Have you heard? Had you heard that before? Yeah, that's an that's an Icelandic poem. I'm sure you know about it, right? It's like the it was like a codec found from 12th century uh, Iceland, and it was like the idea of like the epic, the concept of like a national epic, kind of came from this like these Viking oral tales that were compiled in the 12th century and then kind of rediscovered in the um, 18th and 19th centuries. Okay. Yeah. And so he was like, uh, uh, sorry, Longfellow was actively like, this is basically the American Edda. Cause he kind of wanted to be like, it's this lost story that I've refound, but really he's just, he kind of took a couple of stories and put his stamp on it. Right. Yeah. The, the, this, None of this should be taken as historical. Uh, the name Hiawatha wasn't of an Ojibwe uh, Indian. It was of an Algonquin. You basically don't look into this for any actual history of the Native American tribes. Um, uh, particularly the part where they meet the white man and he's a, uh, it's a, uh, I believe it's a missionary. Mm-hmm. The Ojibwe's would have first met French fur traders. Uh, so that's an interesting little historical, like, myth we tell us like we we're sending the missionaries to meet them no we're sending out our men of commerce basically yeah yeah um but yeah this goes back to this uh this review longfell's poem and despite selling like uh as well as it did this is not a uh it's not a positive review by any stretch of the imagination or on any sort of way you look at it so basically goes on like how the Greeks and Romans have their gods. And it was actually sort of an interesting thing when you go from gods to uh, gods in the heavens to heroes on earth, that mm-hmm. sort of like a narrative shift a little bit. And Beowulf, that, I, I kept thinking of Beowulf in parts of this, of uh, the song of Hiawatha. Uh, you know, he goes and fights the sturgeon, mm-hmm. um, big battles like that, a lot of fighting, that sort of thing. I would say that like the the transmission between gods and like epic heroes is like the nature of kind of like the national epic for the most part. Right. And so this uh, New York Times writer in 1855 writes, Trespassing so closely in form and substance on the Norse mythology, as does the Song of Hiawatha, we doubt very much Mr. Longfellow has done the world of poesy any service by producing it. As an Indian saga, embalming pleasantly enough the monstrous traditions of an uninteresting and, one may almost say, a justly extermined race, the Song of Hiawatha is entitled to commendation. So, I love that little formulation there. One may say... Yeah, yeah. just a casual aside. Like, one might not say it, too. One could have just left it unsaid. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, but we'll just put I'm that in the New York it. Times. This is the paper of record. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, a great lady. The, a justly extermined race. You would never believe that this paper would cheerlead into the uh, Iraq War just a few centuries mm. later. No, or, uh, you know, have people like Br- Barry Weiss and Brett Stevens working for them. Yeah, it seems like a completely different paper now. Um as a poem, it deserves no place when we recollect what Mr. Longfellow has done in Evangeline and reflect on what he can do in future days. We maintain it. There is no romance about the Indian. With his immense genius, Mr. Cooper committed a crime against artistic truth in his highly colored pictures of Indian life. People, of course, followed his errors because genius, however errant, will always find disciples. The melodramatic Indian, a combination of the Spartan hero 
and Corsican bandit, began to live his artificial life in our literature. So yeah. he's, it's basically like a white supremacist critique. Yeah. yeah. Like, how like, dare you use these venerable European forms <laughs> yeah. to render this inferior race of people? This is, it's like, a, it's like a, how can you do Ghostbusters with women? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's I, the exact same it's thing. It's bold man. to go after this and be like, you know what? It's not racist enough, frankly. I mean, we're not done. I mean, there's more in here. Um, was this an anonymous review? It was, way, yeah, unsigned. Um, Funny that. Oh, that's weird, yeah. By the great lady. Um, in Hiawatha, we find Indian life transfigured, glorified, a singular medley of the most poetic and the most vulgar elements. The vulgar elements are no doubt truthful enough. For the <laughs> remainder, we fancy, we must be indebted to the imagination of the poet. What do you think he means by the vulgar elements? It's a good question. I would... Like in that dichotomy, what? Yeah. I don't know, because you would think it's the violence, but violence is so inherent in the stories that it's like lauding, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's like unquestionable. So yeah, I don't know what is vulgar. There's nothing sexual in it. No. It's very asexual, if anything. Yeah. Uh, Hiawatha is a sort of Indian benefactor whose life is passed in bestowing physical benefits upon his people. A material Christ uh, whose miracles are confined to those of the class of the loaves and fishes, literally maize and fish. Cute. Um, uh, so I guess they're, they're right on the symbolism here. It wasn't a mystery to them what the hidden sort of structure of Hiawatha's life is. is yeah, I mean, the Indian review Jesus. is right that it's pedestrian, but like it's like it needs to go one direction or the other, right? And it's like, for them, it's like it needs to be way more racist. And maybe for like the modern reader, it like needs to be way more, I don't know, accurate. Oh, no, like yeah. Native American condition. I'm taking, I'm taking the racism part as read right now, but just the comment on how this is, uh, this, uh, this reviewer agrees with me that Hiawatha is just Indian Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. But, uh, needs, but I think this reviewer wants to push it to be like, it should just be about Jesus, maybe. Possibly, yeah. Or maybe even the old, uh, European heroes, because he says, yeah. uh, um, his his amusements are singularly unapostolic, unless indeed his celebration a celebrated assault on the king of the sturgeons when he succeeds in capturing that unfortunate fish, uh, be ranked parallel with the achievements of the fisherman Peter. I don't know if I agree that he's just the Indian Jesus. No, I think he's also a kind of proto poet and an artist and a kind of craftsman as well. There's a lot in this poem about language the creation of language and the kind of like manifestation of um kind of energy in the world through like acts of creativity and so i don't know i think he's there's a little more to it than just christ-like good deeds for the profit of his people you could probably say that he's probably more like promethean in that sense mm -hmm. if you were to put him in some sort of like western basket right because doesn't doesn't prometheus bring writing I don't know if he brings writing. I think he might also do writing on top of fire. I mean, that's a good haul. Yeah, fire writing. <laughs> um, here's a little bit more from this interview or this review. It would be impossible for so elegant a poet as Mr. Longfellow to tell anything ungracefully. We think that if he took the saga of Baron, Va Baron Munchausen and made a poem out of it, that would be found <laughs> to be full of the most unexpected beauties. Consequently, in Hiawatha, Hiawatha Grotesque, absurd, and savage as the groundwork is, Mr. Longfellow has woven over it a profuse of his own 
uh, poetic elegancies. It resembles a Hindu monster, which, having lain neglected in the temple, has been sought by the ivy or the woodbine that, clambering over its hideous features, have masked the deformity with exquisite foliage. The genius of the poet has trailed over his uncouth Indian legend. Leaves with dewdrops quivering on them hang over his horrid lineaments. If Mr. Longfellow were simply a maker of sagas, instead of the admirable poet which he is, we could understand his wishing to preserve these clumsy Indian legends in a readable form. But after such antecedents as Evangeline, blah, 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 yeah, he's... Uh, so it's like lipstick on a pig, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really has a problem with the source material, I think. Oh, here he goes after the uh, the, troche- the trochaic tetrameter. Right. Mr. Longfellow has chosen his meter almost as unhappily as his subject. <laughs> <laughs> he has managed it so artfully as almost to convert his defeat into a triumph. For a narration orally given, as doubtless the saga was originally a certain ease to the improvisator, this trochaic verse was very suitable. In a long-written poem, it becomes in a long-written poem, it becomes monotonous from the fact that the lines are too short to afford breaks in the middle. The sense in Hiawatha, as far as we could see it, is always obliged to terminate at the end of the line. Now, one of the chief beauties of blank verse is the scope which it gives. It's interesting how, like, it goes from just racism to, like, formal analysis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the New York Times, though. Yeah. No poet who understands his art, if he could help it, would, if you could help it, write a poem where all the full stops came at the ends of the lines. Mr. Longfellow has artfully availed himself of repetition, after the manner of Poe, who hated Longfellow, called him a plagiarist, uh, in order to break uh, the monotony of his composition. He has done, perhaps, all that man could do with such a meter, but after all, the impression left with the reader is very unsatisfactory. In, uns- <clears throat> is very unsatisfactory. Hiawatha is an experiment and a failure. Um, <laughs> oh, that, Do you think Poe was the anonymous reviewer? <laughs> that would be amazing. I don't know if Poe wrote for the New York Times, but he definitely like maybe like knew the guy who was writing it. And he yeah, was yeah. a big troll. So. Yeah. Oh, Poe Poe really hated uh, uh, Longfellow. Yeah. Longfellow was kind of afraid of this. Him. Might be That's fast such a now great literary feud. Yeah. Here's the final. Uh, here's the final uh, paragraph. Uh, Hiawatha, we feel convinced, will never add to Mr. Longfellow's reputation as a poet. Uh. <laughs> it deals with a subject in which we of the present day have little interest, a subject, too, which will never command any interest upon its own intrinsic merits. <laughs> Those Indian legends, like Indian arrowheads, are well enough to hang up in cabinets for the delectation of the curious. Let antiquaries make use of them. They are too clumsy, too monstrous, too unnatural to be touched by the poet. Got him. The watchwords to know for critiquing the Song of Hiawatha are inevitabilism. Basically, the uh, Longfellow buys into the idea that the white man's going to come, and the the most important thing is how do you tr- do that transition to their rule, basically. Yeah, it's treated as progress instead yep. of this like rupture in a society. And um, and also the the no, sort of the, tied in with that is the noble savage who takes all that gracefully, um, and it's funny that even though we understand all of the ways the poem is problematic from the exact opposite angle, um, people were attacking it like yeah, mm-hmm. you need to be more racist. Yeah, after that review, you could almost see like Longfellow as being brave for releasing this poem whether like from instead of like the 2019 experience being like 
I don't know, man. You might want to like rewrite most of this. I'm going to pull from uh, Charles Calhoun, who wrote a book, uh, Longfellow, I Rediscovered Life. And he talks about an early poem Longfellow wrote about an Indian massacre, a Native American massacre. And this is when he was in his teens. And, how, and he talks about his politics a little bit there. That's a very good question. The, the question had to do with the uh, poem that he published in a Portland newspaper at age 13, and that uh, some people thought he had uh, copied a little too closely from a, a, a poem by Thomas Upham. Uh, I, I don't think that really was the case. Uh, the, he may have been imitating Upham in a way. But it's a poem about um, an incident in Maine's colonial... Uh... Just, just a quick point on that. This century was way too concerned about plagiarism. Plagiarism is not that big of a deal. I think it's like it shows a fixation on commodifying uh, sort of writing that was maybe that maybe explains like the economic um, pressures they're under. But it's not good for the culture itself to be this concerned with plagiarism, especially when like Washington Irving, it wasn't plagiarism, like all these examples of it's not plagiarism. Yeah. Or like the major companies now, like IP companies that have made like their billions of dollars, like Disney were all built off of like concepts that were free use then became uh, private property. Yeah. Yeah. It's not conducive to making creative work by like making all these like, little suburban houses of like, this is my idea and this is your idea. Yeah. And they cannot intermingle. And that's also where I think you have the genius myth, the myth of like the personal genius who comes up with everything originally. That's yeah. a, a sort of corollary. Yeah. It's like the original story is like a value when like you look at like the multiple versions of like, let's say Hamlet before the one that we know right, right. Uh, was made. I, I don't think that really was the case. Uh, the, he may have been imitating Upham in a way. But it's a poem about um, an incident in Maine's colonial uh, history when there was a massacre of, of white settlers by a group of, uh, of uh, Abenaki Indians and at a place called Lovell's Pond, um, which is near Freiburg in, in the western hills of Maine. And it's one of those sites that had lingered in popular imagination. And I think uh, as, a, as a child, he certainly heard these stories told he had a grandfather who lived out in Hiram, Maine, which isn't too far from there. Um, and I think it was part of this, well, two things. One, that uh, people of his generation were beginning to be fascinated by the story of the Indians. I mean, the danger from them was gone, at least in, in New England. And they could be looked at as a people uh, of legend and, and of uh, folklore. And you know, this comes through very strongly in Hiawatha. But also, uh, who they were beginning to celebrate their revolutionary era and earlier ancestors. This is New England phenomenon of uh, memorializing the past. So this particular incident came together in a, you know, the Indian story, which is lively and, and uh, bloody and brutal, uh, and the story of the ancestors and the struggles they had to overcome to establish um, America, North America. Um, so I think maybe in his young mind that was uh, part of the lure um, Portland itself in Deering Oaks, where he played as a boy, had had a history of these Indian um, attacks and, and uh, occasional massacres. So it was something, you know, this had all happened 100, 150 years earlier, but it was something that was in the, um, the folkloric atmosphere and would have captured his attention perhaps as an impressionable uh, young man trying to prove himself as a, as a poet. Does, does that um, help? Let's go a little bit further here. Mm-hmm.
I think that's, uh, that's ambiguous. I don't think he would have gone quite that far at that stage of his career. I think, um, you know, he was not a particularly militaristic person. I mean, he supported the American Civil War, certainly, but he had a history of, of um, uh, joining the, you know, the peace societies and, and of being, um, particularly in poems like the Arsenal of Springfield, very, being very critical of the military. Um, so from an early age, I think he picks up from his mother this notion that uh, you know, there's something to be said for being pacific and uh, um, conciliatory and, and not being aggressive. So it's such an early work, I would be uh, reluctant to read too much into it. Maybe that's the way of trying to, uh, to to resolve this question. But there are these elements of all those things at work, and, which is what I think makes it an interesting poem as, as much as a, a piece of juvenilia that it really is. Have you read that poem? Oh, no, I've not. There's the childhood one. No, that was yeah. the first I was hearing about that. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that is, it's, it's interesting that you would have that sort of, I mean, subject matter tells you a lot about the artist, right? Hawthorne wasn't doing something like that. Um, I don't think, um, none of his contemporaries, Yeah, not Emerson, not Thoreau, like the native American is brought up, but probably less than, I don't know, the sun possibly like almost mm -hmm. like they're non-existent in their kind of Massachusetts life. Whereas Longfellow, I think is not obsessed, but he's focused on their lives in a way that it is admirable. I get like, if you think about it in that context of like, no one wants to give this previous nation a voice, I guess. And the idea that this person's like, this story is worth telling. There is something kind of noble about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we also have this good uh, article you found how Longfellow won, uh, how Longfellow woke the dead, um, by Jill Lepore, uh, talks about his relationship with his art and his ability or inability to write about slavery. Mm. 842. Longfellow entertained Dickens during his American tour. He took him to Boston's North End to see Copse Hill and the Old North Church. Not long after, Longfellow sailed for Europe. I am desolate, Sumner wrote, at Longfellow's departure. In London, Longfellow again ran into Dickens and listened to him fulminate over slavery and American hypocrisy. Meanwhile Sumner, back in the States, had become an ardent abolitionist. He wrote to Longfellow, begging him to put his pen to the cause. Write some stirring words that shall move the whole land, Sumner urged. Send them home, and we will publish them. Longfellow obliged, on the return sea voyage, he wrote seven poems in his cabin during stormy, sleepless nights. His poems on slavery was published later that year they're not that stormy. Longfellow had no appetite for combat and no interest in attacking slave owners, that was for Sumner to do. Instead, he wrote, mournfully modern readers would say mawkishly about the plight of slaves. His poems on slavery were, in his view, so mild that even a slaveholder might read them without losing his appetite for breakfast. Still, he was proud of them, writing to his father, some persons regret that I should have written them, but for my own part I am glad of what I have done. They earned him the gratitude of abolitionists but also much opprobrium, especially from Poe, who wrote a review dismissing poems on slavery as intended for the especial use of those negrophilic old ladies of the North, who form so large a part of Mr. Longfellow's friends. Longfellow, <laughs> therefore, backed off. 
Okay, he was so, unwilling even. So there's there's Edgar Allan Poe. For, th- that, this is the episode where no one is making it out alive. Yeah, that ends this installment of how racist is Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he was a nutcase, man. No, none of them. None of them. <laughs> uh, later in that uh, essay, Jill Lepore talks about how. Um, Longfellow went to see Frederick Douglass speak in Boston, and that mm. kind of got him fired up as well. Yeah. Um, and later he wrote in his diary, I long to say some vibrant word that should have vitality in it and force. So it's weird, like, he had this kind of deep urge to be participating in this other kind of national project, but felt somehow kind of circumscribed. Like, he couldn't cross certain lines with his rhetoric yeah and it and it comes and he comes from a privileged like brahmin sort of family yeah yeah. Vibe, yeah like definitely. his uh, his great-grandfather was uh, associates with george washington mm-hmm. his father knew uh lafayette uh so like you should have had the like he and still he's afraid and it's it's weird because it's not like it's not like anyone's going to kill him. Well, maybe, I guess it maybe is that someone would kill him, but it seems like he's more afraid of like Poe going at him. Uh, and be, it seems more personal, right? Than like fear for your safety, more about like fear of opprobrium from people you. What, what's your read on that, Alex? Yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with him having such natural success as a writer that he had more to lose. That it almost reminds me of like a Rockwell kind of character, who Rockwell by all means had. Uh, excellent politics if you look at his like later paintings he's like painting almost exclusively about the civil rights movement but you would never consider him one of the great american masters in painting right. yeah that's right because he was so well known at the time that he was making work that or i don't know who else to describe it like he wasn't able to like get in the struggle because he's like a bit of like an industry like a cottage industry mm-hmm. by the time he's like like by the time this is all unraveling, yeah. Yeah, and apparently at the height of his career, Longfellow was earning three thousand dollars per poem. Like he That's had a crazy. serious kind of amount invested in him, and I think his own sense of being one of America's first true literary celebrities probably prevented him from like really stepping into the fray of the. Uh, slavery debate. Yeah, know? but it's amazing. Like when you actually know the people in the fray. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, like they're his best friends. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's and and so that's why we might, if we do another Longfellow uh, poem, it'll probably be Paul Revere's Ride, uh, because as that Jill Lepore um, article sort of pointed out, that that was sort of by the British he meant slave oh, slave catchers. The British are coming, the slave catchers are coming. Mm-hmm. That sort of that's the sort of transposition he was doing there. I mean, that's as bold as he could get, I guess. But it's, it's an excellent kind of object lesson, and if you don't go for, if you don't go for trying to define your times as like an artist as thoroughly as you see fit, you will probably be left behind. Which he yes. has been, and he totally has been. Yeah, you look at like I don't think Emerson or Thoreau nearly had near like as much like f- like fiscal success mm-hmm. as maybe Longfellow, mm-hmm. and everyone knew Longfellow at the time that he was producing work, but now he's kind of like. I wouldn't say he's in the dustbin, but he's pretty close. Oh, he's he's close. close. He's circling the drain. I mean, yeah, Abe Lincoln was a big fan. Apparently, had him read to. Uh, oh, there's and a very. Queen Victoria. That, too. That's a very funny story. <laughs> queen Victoria nags him like the queen can slay queen. She says, um, 
She's like, all my servants have been reading you, <laughs> which is like, oh my goodness, um, which is pretty amazing. But but it's interesting to think of servants to the queen reading about a sort of American Indian epic poem, right? Like, what, why, why are they they're drawn to that subject matter too? I mean, that's sort of like the that's the Europeans love that noble savage stuff. That's Rousseau, right? Mm-hmm. Like. All that, but it, yeah, like I mean, it's just interesting to me that this became a. That's why we're doing it, right? If this never became a big pop culture thing, um, then we wouldn't be covering it right now. But it's interesting how, um, and and one of the reasons it survived, like it did, is because of um, schools. Basically, um, it became a part of pedagogy, and mm-hmm. kids would learn this even like um, by by the sound of it. Um, yeah, and and. I'll just play a little bit. Maybe the most famous part here, um, the beginning of part one. The Song of Hiawatha. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Good job, Peter. The Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Section one. The Peace Pipe. On the mountains of the prairie, on the great red pipestone quarry, Gitche Manito, the mighty, he the master of life, descending on the red crags of the quarry, stood erect and called the nations called the tribes of men together from his footprints flowed a river leaped into the light of morning o'er the precipice plunging downward gleamed like ishkuda the comet and the spirit stooping earthward with his finger on the meadow traced a winding pathway for it saying to it run in this way from the red stone of the quarry with his hand he broke a fragment moulded it into a pipe-head shaped and fashioned it with figures from the margin of the river took a long reed for a pipe-stem with its dark green leaves upon it filled the pipe with bark of willow with the bark of the red willow breathed upon the neighbouring forest made its great boughs chafe together till in flame they burst and kindled and erect upon the mountains gitche manito the mighty smoked the calumet the peace-pipe as a signal to the nations and the smoke rose slowly, slowly through the tranquil air of morning. First a single line of darkness, then a denser, bluer vapour, then a snow-white cloud unfolding like the tree-tops of the forest, ever rising, 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 till it touched the top of heaven, till it broke against the heaven, and rolled outward all around it. There's also sort of a... Uh, uh star of david or no what what's the star is that the jesus star star, star of bethlehem <clears throat> yeah there's also sort of a star of bethlehem vibe to that um i feel like like and the other thing it reminds me of um more um close to our t- present day is when the uh, dakota access pipeline protests were going on there was a meeting of it might have been 180 or maybe it was 280 tribes um, all had representatives there, mm-hmm. and it was the largest uh, gathering of all the different Native American tribes, um, probably in this century. Um, and so that, those sorts of like the communal signal, the signal to like for unity or to come together, is a sort of like I feel like very archetypal thing in human storytelling. Yeah, I th- I, I think in. The one thing that this poem transmits to today, I think that still has real resonating power, is it's one of the first pieces of uh, 
literature that we've come across so far that really expresses like the vastness of the American countryside that like right. that bathes in this idea that it never ends, that it goes on and on and on. And like, and, and the power of the, like the images of nature that Longfellow is able to bring up, I think are, uh, excellent. Uh, in their execution. Yeah, and I guess here's where I'll get, I'll say my positive things about this. I found the meter, and, the, and especially this narration, amazing. Mm-hmm. I found this uh, really riveting poetry to read, which is not my, uh, I'm not a huge poetry reader. Um, but I, I, like the, it didn't seem monotonous to me. Um, I didn't get sick of it. I don't know, what, how'd you guys feel about the actual, like, uh, meter and and that, the the stylistic parts of it? I think if I had just been reading, it would have been kind of difficult to get through. But the fact that, like, if you read and listen at the same time, especially to this recording, it's yeah. completely mesmerizing, actually. I think so, too, and yeah. absorbing. Um, it kind of feels like an incantation, and it has these kind of, like, hypnotic rhythms that, you know, they kind of resemble, like eddies in a stream almost Mm -hmm. there's something very liquid about the way the language flows and i think that that kind of um brings to life so many of the like transcendentalist meanings that he's playing Mm. with when he's talking about the landscape yeah yeah that's how i read it so basically what happens in the first few chapters is um yeah uh, get you Gichimanito. Yeah, Gichimanito, who's basically the god uh, yeah. figure, um, brings all the tribes together, um, has them make peace pipes. Um, you get uh, introduced to the four winds, one of whom is sort of uh, Hiawatha's father, um, the wind of the west. Um, you get to see Hiawatha's childhood. His wind father is basically not a great father, mm-hmm. uh, lets his mom die. Not present. He disappears, right? That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. He goes to Mujikiwis, the Dakota um, arrow, arrowhead maker, um, to ask for the hand of his daughter, Minihaha, or Laughing Water. Um, and basically, that's another thing that's very common in epic poetry, is the, I, I assume, the meeting of the families, like marrying a daughter, and that br- brings peace to the land. I feel like that might even be in Beowulf. I'm not 100% sure. Does he marry in, in that? I can't remember. I forget. I don't know enough. Yeah, I mean, there's like you could the Dido and Aeneas, although they don't marry, but they're lovers and they're two different. Uh, they're war infections. Yeah, right. Um, that was the way you do did it back then. Too bad we couldn't solve the Iraq War with the marriage. With the marriage, <laughs> just have one of the Bush tw- Bush girls. Bush girls marry a Saddam's son. Yeah, Uday or Kuse. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. R.I.P. Um, to two legends. <laughs> Um, and then uh, let's go to section five, which is Hiawatha's fasting. This is where he mm-hmm. basically like um, goes on sort of a hunger, sort of not strike, a hunger experience <laughs> and uh, learns how to make corn. Um, well, the, so the, the gist of so many of these stories, right, is that they're all different possible Native American stories, right? Yeah. And that essentially Longfellow kind of took them and compiled them and then yeah yeah, and then just changed all like the proper nouns for the most part to make it like this is Hiawatha did this again Hiawatha did all this yeah Hiawatha just for the profit of his people yeah Yeah. although uh, one change is um, Palpicuus the uh, uh, trickster sort of changeling um, 
in an early draft, Hiawatha was the change. It could do changeling stuff, and oh. uh, and Longfellow changed it. Um, but uh, here's where we find out um, that Hiawatha wants to figure out how to do corn. <laughs> Section 5. Hiawatha's Fasting You shall hear how Hiawatha prayed and fasted in the forest, not for greater skill in hunting, not for greater craft in fishing, not for triumphs in the battle and renown among the warriors, but for profit of the people, for advantage of the nations. First he built a lodge for fasting, built a wigwam in the forest by the shining big sea water. In the blithe and pleasant springtime, in the moon of leaves he built it, and with dreams and visions many, seven whole days and nights he fasted. On the first day of his fasting, through the leafy woods he wandered, saw the deer start from the thicket, saw the rabbit in his burrow, heard the pheasant, Bena, drumming, heard the squirrel, Ajidamo, rattling in his hoard of acorns, saw the pigeon, the Omami, building nests among the pine trees. And you can, I, the repetition of, like, the squirrel, Ajidamo, given the name, that's what he's doing there, um, for people who are just uh, listening to this. I found that really effective. The New York Times uh, <laughs> review complains about it, says, like, can't we just have a glossary? But I think it, I think it works out. I like the repetition. Of, Maybe that's what they meant by vulgar. Possibly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in flocks, the wild goose, Wawa, flying to the Fenlands northwards, whirring, wailing far above him. Master of life, he cried, desponding, must our lives depend on these things? On the next day of his fasting, by the river's brink he wandered, through the muscaday, the meadow, saw the wild rice, manamoni, saw the blueberry, minaga, and the strawberry, odamin, and the gooseberry, shabomin, and the grapevine, the bimagut trailing o'er the older branches, filling all the air with fragrance. Master of life, he cried, desponding, must our lives depend on these things? On the third day of his fasting, by the lake he sat and pondered, by the still transparent water, saw the sturgeon, Nama, leaping, scattering drops like beads of wampum, saw the yellow perch, the sawa, like a sunbeam in the water, saw the pike, the maskinosia, and the herring, Okahawis, and the shogasi, the crawfish. Master of life, he cried, desponding, must our lives depend on these things? So he's basically dreaming of all these different types of food that you get on the forage or as a hunter. Master of life, he cried, desponding, must our lives depend on these things? On the fourth day of his fasting in his lodge he lay exhausted, from his couch of leaves and branches, gazing with half-open eyelids full of shadowy dreams and visions, on the dizzy swimming landscape, on the gleaming of the water, on the splendour of the sunset. And he saw a youth approaching, dressed in garments green and yellow, coming through the purple twilight, through the splendour of the sunset. Plumes of green bent o'er his forehead, and his hair was soft and golden. Standing at the open doorway, long he looked at Hiawatha, looked with pity and compassion on his wasted form and features, 
and in accents like the sighing of the south wind in the treetops said he o oh, my hiawatha all your prayers are heard in heaven for you pray not like the others not for greater skill in hunting not for greater craft in fishing not for triumph in the battle nor renown among the warriors but for profit of the people for advantage of the nations from the master of life descending i the friend of man mondamin come to warn you and instruct you how by struggle and by labour you shall gain what you have prayed for rise up from your bed of branches rise o youth and wrestle with me so mondamin comes at the uh, after a few days of his fast and says you want to figure out how to not rely on you know fish and wild berries you got to fight me for it and that's a that's a common thing there's a lot of battles in this and mondamin basically is maze and uh hiwatha kicks his ass and then um has to kill him and bury him in a special funeral in a special sort of grave keep the grave safe from um of uh of god's creatures and then eventually corn grows that is a, where we reach the sort of one of the first uh problematic parts of this which is you know it is true that native americans um cultivated maize and yeah. that was a huge uh, <laughs> a gift if you want to call it that uh um or exploit that we took from them um but it the the way we see this like progressive moving from a sort of uh, hunter-gatherer existence to agricultural existence is very central to why we were ju how we justified taking the land from them in the first place um the whole idea of uh, i play this a little bit from richard slotkin's regeneration uh through violence basically improvements we needed they were they had the natural title to the land as the original inheritors but they weren't improving it like we could so we justified it that way in 1829 a pamphlet appeared in boston under the pseudonym of william penn a name calculated to evoke images of the good quaker and his long peace with the indians which stated the cherokees case according to the writer jeremiah everts the indians case hinged on questions of title Certainly the Indians held their land by the right of original possessors, but the charge against them was that they had forfeited their right by not cultivating the land and, instead, pursuing the chase as a means of subsistence. It was this very argument that had cost Daniel Boone and other frontiersmen their land, the law required that a man improve his land, not simply enjoy it as a hunting park, and improvement meant agriculture. Everts did not set himself against this principle, he simply denied that it applied to the Cherokee, who had become farmers, were they hunters, like the primitive Indians, their title might not be so clear. As it was, their life was identical with that of Greenfield Village, they are at present neither savages nor hunters. It does not appear that they ever were mere wanderers, without a stationary residence. At the earliest period of our becoming acquainted with their condition, they had fixed habitations, and were in the habit of cultivating some land near their houses, where they planted Indian corn, and other vegetables. From about the commencement of the present century, they have addicted themselves more and more to agriculture, till they now derive their support from the soil, as truly and entirely as do the inhabitants of Pennsylvania and Virginia. For many years they have had their herds, and their large cultivated fields. They now have, in addition, their schools, a regular civil government, and places of regular Christian worship. They earn their bread by the labor of their own hands, apply to the tillage of their own farms, and they clothe themselves with fabrics made at their own looms, from cotton grown in their own fields. 
yet the continuance of this idyllic condition depended on their being segregated from the society of white Americans, the assertion of the Cherokees, that their present country is not too large for a fair experiment of the work of civilization, is undoubtedly correct. The wisest men, who have thought and written on this subject, agree that no tribe of Indians can rise to real civilization and to the full enjoyment of Christian society, unless they can have a community of their own, and can be so much separated from the whites, as to form and cherish something of a national character. Thus Everts concurred with Hall in the opinion that separation of the Indians from white America was the prerequisite of progress for the Indians as for the whites. Quoting Jeremiah Ever Everts, this is again from uh, Regeneration Through Violence by Richard Slotkin, Chapter 10. You know, we talk about this poem being problematic. It's there. There are elements of it that are like, oh, that's uh, a messed up uh, point of view, Longfellow. But really, it's like the activity of itself is kind of sickening. It's like a strong enough poem in itself, but like the idea of doing Native American history as the origin story for the American continent or the American Empire while they still exist in Longfellow's Mist, like that these people are, it's not like, I guess you, you can see it as like, so like Aeneas, you know, who founded the, would be the founder of the Roman Empire is this like ex-Trojan, right? And now you could see that's like some form of appropriation, but we don't know anything about the Trojans and neither did they. Uh, it's way different when it's like you're in a, you're living in a culture that's currently exterminating this other culture. And then to write a piece of fiction that's like, Ah uh, yes, and this this culture that existed is our prelude. It's, right. it's something that like you're right to be revolted by the premise. I think with their to be with their actively like um, policy of extermination and removal. Yeah, uh, like this is the famous thing where Andrew Jackson says, "Whoever I can't remember who's the Supreme Court justice who says, you know, we can't remove the Cherokees." He's like, "Well, I mean, do you have an army? Because yeah, yeah. They're, they're getting the fuck out of here." And yeah, I, but that detail, it proves a lie. And this is obviously proven over and over again that um, we didn't want a civic nation. Like, yeah. this wasn't about civic nationality. This was about racism. Yeah. Um, and, like, it didn't matter that they decided to start reading the Bible and start farming. They have to go because, you know, whether it's, like, in Cherokee land in Georgia, there's gold in those hills. So we're going to need that. Yeah. Like, it didn't matter that the the sort of pretenses, like, if they could just assimilate a little bit better, then we'll allow them. It, it was never, that was always a false uh, olive branch to, to have been given them. Matt, I think there was a, uh, a quotation that I, I noted in one of the readings that you provided. I think it was uh -huh. the first New York Times piece. Okay, yeah. Um, and they had a, a pretty good line, just that um, what Longfellow was kind of giving readers in this period was a dim and satisfying past about which readers could have dim and satisfying feelings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, thinking about the sheer amount of violence that is omitted in his retelling of this myth. Right. Um, and really the kind of project that he's building, it's, uh, I think that's pretty apt. Yeah, definitely. That is good. And that, that was, that was from the one in 2000, I think the New right. York times piece. So they came a while in a 140, 145 years. They came, they, full circle. They came a little bit around. Yeah. 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 Um, 
It's pretty cool that they reject him both times but from different point of views. <laughs> yeah. Not woke enough. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so, so we, get, we see him um, get corn. He beats a giant uh, trout or sturgeon, I think, uh, in the fishing thing. And he, like, goes into the fish's stomach. Yeah, he, he the, the fish swallows him whole, and then he punches his heart from the inside. Uh, and then yeah, he is a badass. Oh, he, he's. I mean, Hiawatha versus Beowulf. Like, <laughs> I like Hiawatha more because I think he's more in touch with the animal kingdom. Yeah, I think it's. But it's interesting that he actually isn't described as like physically very imposing, or if he is, I missed it. You know, we don't yeah. see a lot of description it's not of her, him. Like, it's not her, uh, like Hercules or anything no. like that. Well, they do mention a little bit in. Um, a, I'm not sure Isn't which. Isn't it more like his accessories? Like he's got amazing moccasins and he has these great. There's that, but like... he also gets to the point where he can shoot an arrow and run past, run faster than it. Oh. And he can shoot ten arrows in the air at the same time before the first one drops. So he has like certain skills that make him. But he also has a lot of spiritual power, right? Like his canoe, he can command his canoe without actually moving, with, like with his mind. It's a self-driving canoe. Yeah. He is like he is like the Elon Musk of canoes. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, yeah, he he takes. Um, and he has he has moccasins and gloves yeah. uh, that can crush rocks, um, which is a big thing back in the Romantic era. You want to be able to crush some rocks, yeah, um, he, yeah. And I mean, so much of this does feel like where where it's not Indian Jesus, it's sort of Indian um, um, video game hero because yeah, like, like Odysseus almost. He's like crafty, right? Clever because mm-hmm. he goes up against the uh, who's the guy in. Uh, um, Hiawatha and the Pearl Feather. He goes up against this guy. Oh yeah, that's... who who's basically has a whole bunch of wealth. Actually, maybe I should just play that. That was a really I like that one. Um, I like when he kicks his dad's ass for yeah. being like an absent father. Yeah. Like did his his mom died of heartbreak because his dad was yeah. he's a wind so he never shows up. So when Hiawatha becomes an adult, he like confronts and wrestles and beats the shit out of his dad. And his dad's like, ah, well played, son. You've kicked my ass. Yeah, I mean, he, he goes after vengeance, I think. Yeah, he's not a killer, but he just like puts people in their place. Yeah, I mean, they all have it coming. Um, he, uh, in, the, in Hiawatha and the Pearl Feather, he basically, there's basically this guy who, uh, basically he has to go through this, um, this, dark, this pitch dark water and a bunch of serpents. Oh, to yeah. slay this magician who has like, uh, uh, here it is on page 58. Um, he's so he's fighting this guy, and none of his like his moccasins aren't helping, like his special powers. Suddenly, from the bows above him, sang the mama, the woodpecker, the woodpecker. Aim your arrows, Hiawatha, at the head of Megasagwan. Strike the tuft of hair upon it, and their robes, the long black tre- at their <clears throat> at their roots, the long black tresses. There alone can he be wounded. That's very video game logic. Yeah, yeah. Like you're not able to kill this boss, and then like a little like helper is like you're not shooting at the right thing. Yeah, yeah. do this. You got to hit him right on the top of the head at the glowing thing. <laughs> Always look at the glowing thing in video games. Yeah. Whatever the part looks a little bit rendered better, that's what you go for. And um, and Hiawatha couldn't figure that out. Um, and he has a special relationship with the birds, right? Like. Birds mm-hmm. are always helping him. It's unclear to me whether 
maybe I just didn't read it close enough, but can he has like Congress with, or no, sorry. He <laughs> is able to discuss and talk to like anthropomorphic uh, animals and like plants. Mm-hmm. Can anyone else? Is that what makes him special? Or is it, can, I feel like I couldn't, I was just thinking about that now. I think section on his childhood, it says that he, of all beasts, he learned the language, learned their names and all their secrets. So I think it is kind of exclusive to him. Yeah, although I think Chibiados, his uh, singer friend. Oh, the musician, uh, he knows. I think when he, right, I think he ignores some warnings from animals before he dies. Mm. Um, So it's not um, exclusive super exclusive to him but it's definitely something that helps him like when he's stuck in the uh, sturgeon's uh stomach he has seagulls come and eat him out basically mm. Mm. yeah it's quite an interesting take on like the that transcendentalist idea of like the restorative power of nature where instead longfellow's like well nature actually is like it, they're they're all uh, it's like a group of personalities that yeah. can help your discourse with you i mean and their their sense of nature and sort of conversely or like related to that their sense of god is so much more intuitive to me god is basically something anything larger that they can't fully comprehend yeah mm-hmm. um anyway let's i'm going to play a little the opening of this hiwath and the pearl feather um because i like the way they describe this guy he has to go fight and why he has to go fight him Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow section 9 Hiawatha and the Pearl Feather on the shores of Gitchigumi of the shining big sea water stood Nokomi the big sea water is Lake Superior miss the old woman pointing with her finger westward o'er the water pointing westward to the purple clouds of sunset Fiercely the red sun, descending, burned his way along the heavens, set the sky on fire behind him, as war-parties, when retreating, burn the prairies on their war-trail. And the moon, the night-sun, eastward, suddenly starting from his ambush, followed fast those bloody footprints, followed in that fiery war-trail, with its glare upon his features. And Nokomis, the old woman, pointing with her finger westward, spake these words to Hiawatha. Yonder dwells the great pearl-feather, Megisogwan the magician, Manito of wealth and wampum, guarded by his fiery serpents, guarded by the black pitch-water. You can see his fiery serpents, the Kinabik, the great serpents, coiling, playing in the water. You can see the black pitch-water stretching far away beyond them to the purple clouds of sunset. He it was who slew my father by his wicked wiles and cunning when he from the moon descended, when he came on earth to seek me. He, the mightiest of magicians, sends the fever from the marshes, sends the pestilential vapours, sends the poisonous exhalations, sends the white fog from the fenlands. Sends disease and death among us. Take. So I'd just like to point out <clears throat> the lines earlier. Uh, Yonder dwells the great pearl feather, Megasagwan, the magician, Manito of wealth and wampum. Now, if you want to know about wampum, I discover I um, discussed that at length in the Pequot War episode. So go back and look at that. But it's basically. Um, uh, at least on the East Coast, um, they might have used other types of shells, but a type of shell that you um, would sort of carve and make into these beads, and that would sort of not only be a, a source of money or display of, of um, sort of merit or um, 
you know, accomplishment as is the way Longfellow understands it and as we mainly understand it in America, but it's also a way of storytelling. Um, so as we get later into the part where Hiawatha invents picture writing, it's a bit redundant. I mean, Native Americans also obviously had picture writing too, um, but we'll get to that a little bit later. But I like how Pearl Feather, the, uh, the Manito of Wealth and Wampum, he's got this very sparkly wigwam, a shining wigwam that's sort of well-guarded, let's call it a um, gated community. Um, and all of the poison of the uh, environment is coming from him too. So he's not only is he the source of wampum and wealth, but the pestilence is all coming from that too, which that's a pretty good insight. I, I wonder if that's a true... Um, I would like to see the source material, if that is actually a true... Um, uh, Native American, like what's actually true there, because mm-hmm. that is a very interesting um, association. Yeah, very Be- prescient. Because yeah, because I mean, just to to underline <clears throat> it a little bit, climate change isn't about you changing a light bulb. It's about you putting the lights out at Exxon. Uh, <laughs> did you did you think of that? I was just off the dome. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> So you're walking up to the nearest CEO, you can do is knock his fucking lights out. So yeah, basically, Hiawatha um, kicks his ass with the help of that um, bird that tells him to shoot the top of his head. I mean, that's where I would start shooting, frankly. If there's yeah, a shiny yeah. thing on the top of his head, that thing's going right it's away. Out. And eventually, like, get takes all his shit back to his nation. And then the next chapter is the wooing of, of Hiawatha, so he's going after Minnehaha. Um, yeah. He's established. But also, he divides the wealth among his people. Right. That's like the last stanza of that section. Yeah. But the wealth of Megasaguan, all the trophies of the battle, he divided with his people, shared it equally among them. Very um, threatening. Very un-American, too. Mm. Um, although, at this point, that was to be... I think Longfellow wants that to be American, right? Yeah. Um, and because I think Hiawatha is basically sort of what American values just transposed into uh, Native American. Um, and then at the next chapter, Hiawatha's wooing is Hiawatha's like, I need to get a woman. I got all this stuff. It's not all his. Obviously, he is sharing it. But we've got all this stuff. We've got all this stuff. Time for me to find a wife. Um, and that you get a bit of the old fashioned uh, gender politics. Um, or the old fashioning, uh, ongoing fashioning of the gender politics, as unto the bow the cord is, so unto the man is woman. Though she bends him, she obeys him. Though she draws him, yet she follows. Useless, each without the other. And at, um, when Hiawatha was, trying, was talking to Minnehaha's father about um, becoming, uh, having her become his wife, um, Longfellow makes a point of how she doesn't express any will of her own until the moment that she needs to. And that's supposed to be a pretty awesome thing. Um, yeah. Well, Although, I mean, to be uh, fair, I mean, her father does say, like, if she's up for it, she that's can true, be your yeah. wife. I feel like that's that that's in a lot of literature. Or is that just affectation? No, I think that's true. I think it, that's one way it, like, that was, like, that was liberal at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely like Mr. Bennett's vibe in Pride and Prejudice. So it's like, exactly. if she wishes to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, know. yeah. you have to break her spirit first, of course. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, the, they have the wooing. Um, they have the wedding feast where um, 
where uh, Chibiabos plays his music everyone loves. And then Iagu, interesting character. He's the uh, big the boaster. Storyteller. The yeah. storyteller who everyone sort of makes fun of. Um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of love that guy. <laughs> that guy is true in like in all times in history of just this guy who's like, oh, here comes a guy who you have to assume what he's saying is bullshit, but he's pretty funny in the way he says the it. The raconteur. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, here, uh, here's a little bit of that. As the shining river darkens, when the clouds drop shadows on it, when thou smilest, my beloved, then my troubled heart is brightened, as in sunshine gleam the ripples that the cold wind makes in rivers. Smile the earth and smile the waters, smile the cloudless skies above us, but I lose the way of smiling when thou art no longer near me. I myself, myself, behold me, blood of my beating heart, behold me. Oh, awake, awake, beloved, on away, awake, beloved. That's the Chibiabos. The gentle Chibiabos sang his song of love and longing. And Iagu, the great boaster, he the marvellous storyteller, he the friend of old Nokomis, jealous of the sweet musician, jealous of the applause they gave him, saw in all the eyes around him, saw in all their looks and gestures, that the wedding guests assembled longed to hear his pleasant stories, his immeasurable falsehoods. Very boastful was Iagu, never heard he an adventure, but himself had met a greater, never any deed of daring, but himself had done a bolder, never any marvellous story, but himself could tell a stranger. Would you listen to his boasting, would you only give him credence, no one ever shot an arrow half so far and high as he had, ever caught so many fishes, ever killed so many reindeer, ever trapped so many beaver. None could run so fast as he could, none could dive so deep as he could, none could swim so far as he could, none had made so many journeys, none had seen so many wonders as this wonderful Iagu, as this marvellous storyteller. Thus his name became a byword and a jest among the people, and whene'er a boastful hunter praised his own address too highly, or a warrior, home returning, talked too much of his achievements, all his hearers cried, Iagu, here's Iagu come among us. He it was who carved the cradle of the little higher Yeah, so here's Iagu come among us. There was, that. this might be a little tenuous, but there is in... Um uh, Telemachus in the opening chapter of Ulysses, Buck Mulligan makes a note that his name is a in trochee meter, Buck Mulligan, oh, and yeah. I can't help but feel that that is Buck Mulligan, this character, like the boaster, big mouth. Interesting, yeah. That well, isn't the first stately, plump Buck Mulligan? Is yeah. that a trochee? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, you got fake news Iago over there. He's, <laughs> um, I mean, and that's a very common thing. I mean, people talk about the common, you know, fishing stories, you know, mm-hmm. it was this big sort of thing. Um, and having been on in like hunting parties, especially with younger boys that were my age, say around like 12 or 13, the impulse to say like, I just saw a huge deer over there. <laughs> And it to be not true was yeah. um, beyond uh, at least one of the lads that I was commonly uh, <laughs> hunting with. And he would always say shit. It's like, you did not see a bobcat over there. I yeah, know yeah. you didn't. Um, uh, but Tell that was us more yeah. about your hunting experience, Matt. Um, oh, I don't know if I... Uh, um, 
It's been like vaguely brought up, but not seriously looked into. Yeah. We might get to more of it. I don't have any relevant stories off the top of my head um, for this. Um, although I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have anything really. Is that um, all in your past or? <laughs> um, no, I'll go pheasant hunting um, mm. now. It's been a couple of years though, because I'm usually in New York for that. But uh, but that's mainly family tradition, uh, sort of thing. Can move to oh, let's move to the uh, where he invents writing. Um, mm. This is also uh, yeah. Section fourteen: Picture writing. In those days, said Hiawatha, Lo, how all things fade and perish! From the memory of the old men pass away the great traditions, the achievements of the warriors, the adventures of the hunters, all the wisdom of the Medas, all the crafts of the Wabenos, all the marvellous dreams and visions of the Josakids. Just to reiterate, this wasn't a real problem. Um, the Native Americans were good at passing on their customs, and uh, for wampum itself was used, they would um, put beads in different patterns and different um, uh, colors uh, to tell stories like this and keep track of lineages like this. Well, I mean, yeah, we should say that the the whole, at least the, the popular theory now of like where epic poetry came from, came from a pre-written society that these like meters are a way of, is like a mnemonic device to memorize long phrases of like that society's law or history right. or tradition and things like that. Right. You're writing. In those days, said Hiawatha, lo, how all things fade and perish from the memory of the old men pass away the great traditions the achievements of the warriors, the adventures of the hunters, all the wisdom of the Medas, all the crafts of the Wabenos, all the marvellous dreams and visions of the Josakids, the prophets. Great men die and are forgotten. Wise men speak. Their words of wisdom perish in the ears that hear them, do not reach the generations that, as yet unborn, are waiting in the great mysterious darkness of the speechless days that shall be. On the grave-posts of our fathers are no signs, no figures painted. Who are in those graves we know not, only know they are our fathers. Of what kith they are, and kindred, from what old ancestral totem, be it eagle, bear, or beaver, they descended, this we know not, only know they are our fathers. Face to face we speak together, but we cannot speak when absent, cannot send our voices from us to the friends that dwell afar off, cannot send a secret message, but the bearer learns our secret, may pervert it, may betray it, may reveal it unto others. Thus said Hiawatha, walking in the solitary forest, pondering, musing in the forest on the welfare of his people. From his pouch he took his colours, took his paints of different colours, on the smooth bark of a birch-tree, painted many shapes and figures, wonderful and mystic figures, and each figure had a meaning, each some <coughs> word or thought suggested. Gitche Manito, the mighty, he, the master of life, was painted as an egg, with points projecting to the four winds of the heavens. Everywhere is the great spirit, was the meaning of this symbol. 
So yeah, he invents writing, and the, one of the first things he does is make God. Um, this his section about face to face we cannot speak, or face to face we speak together, but we cannot speak when absent. I cannot send our voices far from far from us, as uh, as Tom Nermy points out in Writing Ojibwe: Politics and Poetics in Longfellow's Hiawatha. Um, with his lament for ancestral memory, uh, Hiawatha subtly stages a con. <clears throat> subtly stages a conversation about the function of writing itself, a conversation dating at least to Plato's Phaedrus, uh, circa 370 BC. Late in Phaedrus, Socrates and Phaedrus debate the Egyptian myth of Thuth, the inventor of writing. Thuth argues to King Thamus that writing will, quote, make the Egyptians wiser and will improve their memories. Thamus responds, they will not... Uh, they will not need to exercise their memories, being able to rely on what is written. Thus, writing is not a recipe for memory, but for reminding. Thamus claims that writing will cause people to entertain the delusion that they have wide knowledge, whereas they are, in fact, for the most part, incapable of real judgment. Um, so I, I think Longfellow must have known that. Um, you know, he was a Harvard uh, language scholar, um, professor, and a translator of Dante and he would have been familiar with the parallels he's making there. And it's interesting when you think about how important print media is to na nationalism in general, um, like the map, for instance, right? Like, um, it's visual culture, um, generally. Yeah. It's almost like the, the song of Hiawatha is a story of native Americans that are ready for, uh, dominance by european settlers like they wouldn't even know what to do with being a vassal state of europeans but now they have like they've reached the evolutionary stage of like we have writing and we have like domestic yeah we have agriculture now we can we can be fully uh controlled <laughs> basically right exactly it's it this is basically the epic poem of the native americans getting ready to be subsumed and taken yeah. over by uh white colonists it's almost like the language of evolution before like cultural evolution before that language is there yeah and you see them kind of adopting like technologies that would prefigure kind of industry and capital um in the next century right of the song of here's from uh, the chapter the white the man's domain. foot recording by peter yearsley the Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth. The second to the last. Okay. Section 21, The White Man's Foot. So uh, our, our friend the boaster Iago comes back. And what's interesting about Iago is he's not just a figure of ridicule. His stories come from him being a traveler, basically. And it actually does pay dividends in, in that are real, even though he gets in his way by basically ruining his own credibility with exaggeration. Mm -hmm. um, so here at this, uh, he, he's coming back from, uh, um, from wandering eastward. Um, and he has some news and, and this is a boy cried wolf sort of scenario where they don't quite believe what he says until, you know, someone with more credibility steps in. Gazed upon the earth and waters from his wanderings far to eastward, from the regions of the morning, from the shining land of Waban, homeward now returned Iagu, the great traveller, the great boaster, full of new and strange adventures, marvels many and many wonders. And the people of the village listened to him as he told them of his marvellous adventures. Laughing answered him in this wise, 
Ah, oh, it is indeed Iagu. No one else beholds such wonders. He had seen, he said, a water bigger than the big sea-water, broader than the Gitchigumi, bitter, so that none could drink it. At each other looked the warriors, looked the women at each other, smiled and said, It cannot be so. Caw, they said, it cannot be so. O'er it, said he, o'er this water, came a great canoe with pinions, a canoe with wings came flying, bigger than a grove of pine-trees, taller than the tallest tree-tops. And the old men and the women looked and tittered at each other. Caw, they said, we don't believe it. From its mouth, he said, to greet him, came Waiwasimo, the lightning, came the thunder, Anamiki, and the warriors and the women laughed aloud at poor Iagu. Caw, they said, what tales you tell us? In it, said he, came a people, in the great canoe with pinions, came, he said, a hundred warriors, painted white were all their faces, and with hair their chins were covered, and the warriors and the women laughed and shouted in derision, like the ravens on the tree-tops like the crows upon the hemlocks. Caw, they said, what lies you tell us? Do not think that we believe them. Only Hiawatha laughed not, but he gravely spake, and answered to their jeering and their jesting. True is all Iagu tells us. I have seen it in a vision, seen the great canoe with pinions, seen the people with white faces, seen the coming of this bearded people of the wooden vessel, from the regions of the morning, from the shining land of Waybun. Gitche Manito, the mighty, the great spirit, the creator, sends them hither on his errand, sends them to us with his message. Wheresoe'er they move, before them swarms the stinging fly, the amo, swarms the bee, the honey-maker. Wheresoe'er they tread, beneath them springs a flower, unknown among us, springs the white man's foot in blossom. Let us welcome, then, the strangers, hail them as our friends and brothers, mm -hmm. and the heart's right hand of friendship give them when they come to see us. Gitche Manito the Mighty said this to me in my vision. I beheld, too, in that vision, all the secrets of the future, of the distant days that shall be. I beheld the westward marches of the unknown crowded nations. All the land was full of people, restless, struggling, toiling, striving speaking many tongues, yet feeling but one heartbeat in their bosoms. In the woodlands rang their axes, smoked their towns in all the valleys. Over all the lakes and rivers rushed their great canoes of thunder. Then a darker, drearier vision passed before me, vague and cloud-like. I beheld our nation scattered, all forgetful of my counsels, weakened, warring with each other, saw the remnants of our people sweeping westward, wild and woeful, like the cloud-rack of a tempest, like the withered leaves of autumn. So it's actually um, fairly... He has a bad presentiment there, even though... It, it, it's, a, it's, it's such a weird figure, because Hiwatha saying, Gichimanito, the great father told me that this was going to happen and it should be fine but i'm seeing that it's probably not going to end up fine yeah and he was right i mean but it's, it's so it's it's a i don't know i was i always i found the end of this hard to sort of um think about i guess it feels like verse by committee there's there's no it's it's not pointing towards any kind of sense of wholeness <clears throat> It's always a little bit here, a little bit there, but just kind of vague. I don't know, Grace, what was your takeaway? 
This section, I felt, yeah, there were, it's kind of pulling in two different directions, and it it seems like Longfellow, as much as he wanted to present this kind of very sanitized, sentimentalized vision of this moment, um, like by the end of this section, he's like, okay, we have to acknowledge that what happened was way darker than what Hiawatha was hoping for um, and what the great creator kind of told him. Like the, the fact that Longfellow is very keen to present Hiawatha as uh, having this kind of like innocence in his response to these people, yeah. like that we have to welcome them, we have to treat them uh, as friends and brothers. But then by the end of the section, he's like, yeah, but, you know, he has to kind of acknowledge what people knew to be true. Yeah. And it's weird in the next section, um, the final final section, Hiawatha's departure, one of the refrains is that you come so far to see us. It is well, they said, oh brothers, that you come so far to see us. Um, uh, about the about the uh, white men. The like, missionaries. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank God you came to see us and tell us about Jesus. And it reminds me of the Massachusetts Bay uh, Territory, the Massachusetts Bay Company's flag was a Native American with a speech bubble coming out of his mouth saying, come over and help us. Yeah. For real? Yeah, for real. Yeah. <laughs> and Wow. <laughs> yeah, literally, it's what that says. There's uh, some, I, I guess I picked, I mean, yeah, that, that made, that's, that's a much clearer set of lines, but I got kind of an ambiguous reading on whether the Native Americans in the final uh, section are interested in this information or not, where they like the, the white men tell them about Jesus Christ and her and his redeeming qualities. And they're like, okay, well that's great. We'll think about that. It's like the last time you, that's like the last note that you leave that discourse on. I feel like that's an, an ambiguous enough note that it's like, what, what was the meaning of, inserting this meaning meeting into the final section of this poem because there's nothing definitive that is left with only with what you know there's like the history mm. of like yeah these like christians dominate and uh genocide this culture yeah let's and uh also the oh. previous section just going back to that when he talks about having a darker drearier vision he says that he sees i beheld our nation scattered all forgetful of my counsels, weakened, warring with each other. It's almost like victim blaming. Yes. Mm. You know, he's like, we became disunified and it was our problem. Yep. You didn't take my picture writing or my corn growing right. seriously enough, guys. Yeah. It's all on them. There's no like agency ascribed to these people coming across the the Atlantic. Yeah. yeah here's, we'll play a bit from uh, when he's meeting the, uh, the black robe chief, the pale face. Never the broad leaves of... It's always interesting when a white guy writes the word pale face. <laughs> it is always interesting. <laughs> always fun. <laughs> Never before had our tobacco such a sweet and pleasant flavor. Never the broad leaves of our cornfields were so beautiful to look on as they seem to us 
this morning when you come so far to see us <laughs> and the black robe chief made answer like, stammered oh you're gonna teach me how to exploit those in the marketplace aren't you basically yeah, yeah. or just that vision of like they're literally like they're bored like native americans are bored being like i wish we had some purpose why can't we do more with this tobacco yeah yeah oh, i wish we, could, we were more studious yeah we could be we could be taking over the world with it <laughs> never bloomed the earth so gaily never shone the sun so brightly as today they shine birch canoe in passing has removed both rock and sandbar never before had our tobacco such a sweet and pleasant flavour never the broad leaves of our cornfields were so beautiful to look on as they seem to us this morning when you come so far to see us and the black robe chief made answer stammered sorry i'm just going to go back further let's start that from a little bit earlier because this section is pretty amazing actually then the joyous Hiawatha cried aloud and spake in this wise, Beautiful is the sun, O strangers, when you come so far to see us. All our town in peace awaits you. All our doors stand open for you. You shall enter all our wigwams, for the heart's right hand we give you. Never bloomed the earth so gaily, never shone the sun so brightly, as today they shine and blossom when you come so far to see us. Never was our lake so tranquil, nor so free from rocks and sandbars, for your birch canoe in passing has removed both rock and sandbar. Never before had our tobacco such a sweet and pleasant flavour, never the broad leaves of our cornfields were so beautiful to look on, as they seem to us this morning, when you come so far to see us. And the black robe chief made answer, stammered in his speech a little, speaking words yet unfamiliar, Peace be with you, Hiawatha, peace be with you and your people, peace of prayer and peace of pardon, peace of Christ and joy of Mary. Then the generous Hiawatha led the strangers to his wigwam, seated them on skins of bison, seated them on skins of ermine, and the careful old Nokomis brought them food in bowls of basswood, water brought in birchen dippers, and the calumet, the peace-pipe, filled and lighted for their smoking. All the old men of the village, all the warriors of the nation, all the Jossakids, the prophets, the magicians, the Wabenos, and the medicine-men, the Medas, came to bid the strangers welcome. It is well, they said, O brothers, that you come so far to see us. In a circle round the doorway with their pipes they sat in silence, waiting to behold the strangers, waiting to receive their message, till the black-robed chief, the pale-face, from the wigwam came to greet them, stammering in his speech a little, speaking words yet unfamiliar. It is well, they said, O oh brother, that you come so far to see us. Then the black robe chief, the prophet, told his message to the people, told the purport of his mission, told them of the Virgin Mary and her blessed son, the Saviour, how in distant lands and ages he had lived on earth as we do, how he fasted, prayed, and laboured, how the Jews, the tribe accursed, mocked him, scourged him, crucified him. How he rose from where they laid him, walked again with his disciples, and yeah. ascended into heaven. And the chiefs made answer, saying, We have listened to your message, we have heard your words of wisdom, we will think on what you tell us. It is well for us, O brothers, that you come so far to see us. Then they they do kind of move on, like, uh, well, I guess we'll play a little bit further. Rose up and departed, each one homeward to his wigwam. To the young men and the women told the story of the strangers, whom the master of life had sent them, 
from the shining land of Waben. Heavy with the heat and silence grew the afternoon of summer. With a drowsy sound the forest whispered round the sultry wigwam. With a sound of sleep the water rippled on the beach below it. From the cornfields, shrill and ceaseless, sang the grasshopper Pa Pukina, and the guests of Hiawatha, weary with the heat of summer, slumbered in the sultry wigwam. Slowly o'er the simmering landscape fell the evening's dusk and coolness, and the long and level sunbeams shot their spears into the forest, breaking through its shields of shadow, rushed into each secret ambush, searched each thicket, dingle, hollow. Still the guests of Hiawatha slumbered in the silent wigwam. From his place rose Hiawatha, bade farewell to old Nokomis, spake in whispers, spake in this wise, did not wake the guests that slumbered. I am going, O Nokomis, on a long and distant journey, to the portals of the sunset, to the realms of the home wind, of the north-west wind, Giwadin. But these guests I leave behind me. In your watch and ward I leave them. See that never harm comes near them. See that never fear molests them, never danger nor suspicion, never want of food or shelter in the lodge of Hiawatha. Forth into the village went he, bade farewell to all the warriors, bade farewell to all the young men, spake persuading, spake in this wise, I am going, O my people, on a long and distant journey. Many moons and many winters will have come, and will have vanished, ere I come again to see you. But my guests I leave behind me. Listen to their words of wisdom. Listen to the truth they tell you, for the master of life has sent them from the land of light and morning. On the shore stood Hiawatha, turned and waved his hand at parting. On the clear and luminous water launched his birch canoe for sailing. From the pebble. And we'll uh, cut out there. He leaves, and as, uh, as his canoe goes down the river, the other Native Americans are sad to see him go. Um, but it's kind of a hell of a last uh, directive. Like, make sure they're fine, though. Like, keep taking care of these, uh, our new visitors who've come so far to see us, and they've got the truth. Uh, there it is. He just accepts it r immediately. Yeah, it's a hell of a time for a prophet to leave. Yeah. Considering being like, well, everything looks fine. Well, it's like he's he's like the warm-up prophet. Yeah, yeah, he's like the John the Baptist welcoming this hmm. the, the true deliverer that's about to show up. Yeah. Grace, you want to talk about your or do you, you had your thing with um Shelley, or your connection there? Uh, yeah, I I suppose just, you know, in the kind of more creative aspects of Hiawatha's um like legacy i suppose um especially with the creation of picture writing that chapter that we've talked about i thought a lot about the romantics the english romantics especially shelley and his theory of poetry uh which he lays out in a defense of poetry which i think was written in the 1820s but published posthumously in 1840 so just 15 years before hiawatha mm -hmm. And in that essay, Shelley, Shelley is really kind of bringing out the moral function of poetry, but also this idea that the creation of language itself was a kind of a way of connecting like the mind of man with landscape, with divinity, with uh, 
beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's like a very kind of high romantic theory of poetry, and he goes back to Plato as well. And Matt, you mentioned Plato earlier, um, and I just thought that it was, you know, one of the places in this epic where you see Longfellow really like participating in the romantic tradition self-consciously um and i thought that was nice you know and i think i think that probably is uh, i did hear that mentioned i think in one of the um, other readings i did on this i think that i think there probably might be an allusion to that um i want to play a little bit from from uh, more from richard slotkin uh, one of my favorite uh, writers on these sorts of topics uh this is what he has to say about hiawatha The inversion of traditional Indian-wide relationships and the romantic association of the Indians with those characteristic virtues acquired by the Americans in their transit from the Old World to the New made the use of the Indian as a symbolic American hero practicable as a literary device. In 1848 Albert Smith published an epic poem entitled Makahim Shikayakiak, or Black Hawk, a national poem, in which the character of natural patriot given him in the autobiography is linked with that of the white civilizers who come to perfect his land. A more influential and enduring use of the Indian as a national hero is Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha, 1855. Longfellow relied on this association of white with red Americans in offering his epic to those who love a nation's legends and the wilderness landscape of United States and to those who admit at least their human kinship with all men, however savage, yet whose hearts are fresh and simple, who have faith in God and nature, who believe, that in all ages every human heart is human, that in even savage bosoms there are longings, yearnings, strivings for the good they comprehend not, listen to. This simple story, to the song of Hiawatha. Longfellow's attitude toward his subject is mixed. On the one hand, he offers Hiawatha as a godlike hero, embodiment of all the savage virtues and most of the Christian ones. On the other hand, he cannot deny that only through the conquest of Hiawatha's people and country by the white man have Christianity and civilization been brought into the Indian solitudes. This ambivalence is paralleled by his technique in composing the poem. In creating an epic, Longfellow wished to convey to his reader a sense of the primitive, mythopoeic perception that characterizes the first narrative poetry of any people. America, in its coming of age as a nation and an empire, seemed in a state comparable to that of Homeric Greece or the Rome of Virgil, requiring an epic poem to sum up and crystallize the worldview and historical experience of the people. Unlike the Greeks and the Romans, however, America was the creation of human artifice as much as of natural evolution, its people were, not a single tribe, but a mixture of emigrants from all over Europe at various stages of acculturation. The epic poet, like the writers of the Declaration of Independence, seemingly had to create a nation and a people by verbal fiat. The chief distinguishing feature of this people was the fact that their heritage had, through long years in the wilderness, become a mixture of Indian and European. Thus Longfellow turned to the mythologies of both primitive America and primitive Europe for his subject matter and his literary forms, borrowing the Indian legends compiled by Schoolcraft for his story and the verse form of the Finnish epic Kalevala for his meter. Similarly, the meaning of Hiawatha's heroic career became, in Longfellow's hands, a blend of Indian and European values. Hiawatha is both the Prometheus of his people and the prophet who prepares them for assimilation into the greater, Christian people who will succeed them in the land. The Indian legends are seen to embody the seed kernels of Christianity, and the growth of Hiawatha reveals the slow, organic growth of Christian principles out of savage soil. After the proem and invocation to the reader, the poem begins with an account of the Manitou's visit to the earth, his gift of the calumet, or peace pipe, to the Indian tribes, and the careers of his sons, the four winds. 
Munchakiwas, the lecherous and fickle west wind, begets Hiawatha on the daughter of Nokomis, as Zeus yeah, so, well, uh, Especially when you consider that Longfellow was a translator of um, Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, a translation that's still in use today. It's actually probably his most like what he's probably most known for right now in 2019. Mm. Uh, but I think Dante's epic poem is probably most famous for synthesizing quite beautifully the, the classical tradition of Greece and Rome with the, the high medieval uh, Christian tradition and finding a way to make those two worlds fit seamlessly together. Mm. And I think you could see that in Longfellow trying to jump off from that being like, well, now I'm going to try to synthesize as Christianity with, uh, the native American experience. Right. And in my opinion, uh, he failed at that yeah. attempt, mm-hmm. totally. I think in a way that Dante soars and that you can still read it today. And it's yeah. quite moving and relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you should try to sh- sell uh, 50,000 poems in 1857. <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about Three the fact that the I'm, a, yeah, yeah I didn't think about the fact that I'm a, that I suck. Um, uh, let's uh, just take a little bit more from that Slotkin chapter. The Indian who teaches and partially converts the white man, making the born European into a new American man. Hiawatha's career also suggests to the white man the proper relationship man must maintain between the forest world and the agrarian world, between hunting and agriculture, between solitude and society. In all his lonely quests, Hiawatha bears in mind that his purpose is a social one, even in his wooing of the forest goddess slash woman Minihaha, Personal passion is linked with the social passion. The consummation of his marriage is not an isolated act of passion in deep woods far from men's haunts. It is a social event, culminating in Minihaha's blessing of the fields with her body. When the white men arrive, they will have less need than Hiawatha to exile themselves in solitude. They will reap the benefits of Hiawatha's lonely quests in the gifts of corn and agricultural technique they take from their benefactor. Solitude the physical and moral isolation of the individual in the wilderness is... As Longfellow sees it, the Indian's appropriate milieu, the environment in which he is most himself. Hiawatha's social passion and agrarian religion are more appropriate to the white men who will succeed him than to his own people, who are unruly and selfish during his life and disobedient after his death. In this judgment Longfellow misses the central qualities of Indian tribalism, a psychology of tribal solidarity which pervaded the universe, converting beasts and deities into kinfolk, and an ethic of sacrifice for the tribe which was generally so strong as to permit wide latitude for individual action without endangering the solidarity and order of the body politic. What was solitude to a white observer was a people dwelling to the Indian. Longfellow carries to its logical conclusion the paradoxical premises at the heart of the Boone myth, that the American hero is simultaneously hunter and farmer, wanderer and citizen, exploiter and cultivator. Hiawatha's mingled passion for society and solitude, for agriculture and hunting, sets him somewhere between the two races and cultures, making him a spiritual half-breed or, more accurately, a mediating figure between mythological conceptions of the old and the new Americans like Daniel Boone. Longfellow heightens the contradictions inherent in the hero figure by making explicit the American tendency toward identification with the, mythological, Indian, by taking his hero from a well-known collection of Indian legends, and by presenting him in the poem as an exponent of the Indian way of life and mythopoeic consciousness of the wilderness world. At the same time, he emphasizes those aspects of Indian myths and life ways that indicate a tendency toward cultivation and improvement of N.A. Tour. That it is the ideal of cultivation, and its implicit connotations of general progress and uplift, that is for Longfellow the chief justification of Hiawatha, and the line of hunter-heroes of whom he is the latest expression, 
is evidenced by the conclusion of the poem, in which the Indian hero is seen as accepting the displacement of his race in the favor of his gods by the whites an acceptance inconceivable to any hero of a truly tribal mythology. The dual character of Hiawatha is thus a part of that useful ambiguity about the character and historic role of the developers of the American frontier that permitted contemporary writers to see the displacement of the Indians and the exploitation of their land as an aspect of their cultivation and improvement. And there you have it. So Slotkin coming in. Hitting the nail on the head. It's pretty good, ain't he? Yeah. Um, so I think that's about... Oh, by the way, I should also mention that cold open. <laughs> I forgot to say what that was. <laughs> Um, but that was uh, a classic film. We should all know that was from Spider-Man Two. Yeah, uh, have you seen that? Had you seen that movie before? Not since the no. theaters. I, I I've never seen a single Spider-Man movie in my entire life. Spider-Man Two. Uh, yes, yeah, Spider-Man Two. Spider-Man Two with um, the guy who's an octopus. Um, That's when I was kind of checking out with the comic book movies. I was like, they've got to wrap these up. And that was like seventeen years ago. Yeah, I don't know why it is, but Spider-Man particularly never appealed to me. The the, the new uh, game for PlayStation is not bad. The Spider-Verse uh, animation was amazing. Into the Spider-Verse? Yeah. Do you think that they like... I love They that. go into like, the Hiawatha-verse at any point? <laughs> I didn't detect any Hiawatha-ism. Um, but it's set in Brooklyn. Oh, really? It's fun, yeah. Is there... How, what, what's the best hipster joke in that movie? Oh, my God, there are so many... <laughs> It was funny when I saw it in the theater in Cobble Hill. There were like, you know, hipster families with toddlers. Yeah, little hipster and like, babies. The toddlers were like, you know, giggling with glee. And then the parents yeah. were laughing heartily at all of the kind of virtue signally jokes. <laughs> <laughs> the two-year-old with his Joy Division t-shirt on. <laughs> I like how he's told to go get love poetry and he picks up the song of Hiawatha. Well, that's the thing is the... He's not reading poetry very well if he thought that section was relevant to um, seducing Kirsten Dunst. Wait, is this Toby Maguire? Yeah. That, oh. Yeah, is that him? Yeah, yeah. He's a good Spider-Man. The upside-down kiss. That's iconic. The upside-down kiss is amazing. Oh, love that. Tall and slenderly, all alone upon a prairie, pretty screen all her garments, and her hair was like the sunshine. Wait, is he comparing <coughs> Kirsten Dunst to Minnehaha? I think that's it. It's just, it is nice. Like, <coughs> there's something actually quite powerful about like, ugh, I'm going to botch this. You're going to have to take this home. But it's like the idea of like the, the new popular American mythos, which is superheroes just uh, once again appropriating, appropriating an appropriation of a Native American story <laughs> to sell tickets <laughs> for the most part. Or like to legitimize it. It's like, what's good poetry? This song to Hiawatha. Or maybe it's actually a joke about how he doesn't know what good poetry is, and he's, mm. you know, he's. Hold on, I need to find picked up this. a dud. <laughs> this is why it's funny because he's not talking about mini haha. He's talking about. Please be the trickster. No, he's talking about when the I fucking know. no the uh, the Shawandasi, the uh, Southern Wind. This is in the Four Winds chapters. Uh, I believe it's the second one, second section. And he listless, careless Shawandasi. In his life, he had one shadow. In his heart, one sorrow had he. 
Once, as he was gazing northward, far away upon a prairie, he beheld a maiden standing, saw a tall and slender maiden all alone upon a prairie. Brightest green were all her garments, and her hair was like the sunshine. Day by day he gazed upon her, day by day he sighed with passion. Day by day his heart within him grew more hot with love and longing for the maid with yellow tresses. But he was too fat and lazy to bestir himself to woo her, yes, too indolent and easy to pursue her and persuade her so he only gazed upon her only sat inside with passion for the maiden of the prairie that maiden um okay here it is till one morning looking northward he beheld her yellow tresses changed and covered o'er with whiteness covered as with white as snowflakes ah my brother from the northland from the kingdom of wabasso from the land of the white rabbit you have stolen the maiden from me you have laid your hand upon her you have wooed and won my maiden with your stories of the northland and then uh, it continues, Poor deluded Shawandasi, t'was no woman that you gazed at, t'was no maiden that you sighed for. T'was the prairie dandelion that though, that through all the dreamy summer you had gazed at with such longing, you had sighed for with such passion, and had puffed away forever, blown into the air with sighing. Ah, deluded Shawandasi. So, awesome. Toby Maguire is reading about a guy thinking a dandelion is actually a beautiful woman. Yeah. So I don't know what that's, what he's trying to say about Kirsten Dunst there. Well, it's hoping that Kirsten Dunst doesn't know the poem or, or will read it later. Right. He's yeah. like, just, just, just pay attention to this. Just part. read the excerpt, Kirsten. Don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. don't return to this. Yeah. Read it coming out of my mouth. Yeah. Um, so I think that, uh, we can, uh, wrap up by correcting a major Hollywood, uh, <laughs> motion picture. Yeah. Um, this is the first recording we've had in the new literary hangover studio, <laughs> which, uh, is, uh, my former roommate's room. Uh, so thank you patrons.com cause, uh, <laughs> Um, basically I could be deciding if I want to move into a smaller apartment, but I think I'm actually just going to try to stay. I'm getting a good deal on this one. Now we have this extra room here now. And so I'm just going to try to colonize it. I do feel like a colonizer. Although um, from the way that the cat has been behaving, it feels like he thinks it's his room. Yeah, I know. Well, it's going to be a, well, one of us has a uh, writing. Um, and, uh, so Barnaby's going to, find uh um, colonization difficult without the written word um, <laughs> you've got the technology it brings yeah. like a whole new meaning to like podcast housekeeping yeah. to do at the end of the episode i come back one day and like there's a new uh there's a new rental agreement and barnaby's paw print is yeah on that the, would be like, crazy <laughs> um but uh uh, thank you for the patrons because uh, I wouldn't. I'd be. I'd be looking for a different apartment if it if it wasn't for how well this is going. But uh, I also mean that also means uh, we need more patrons. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two rooms is not enough. Yeah, uh, patreon.com slash literary hangover. Uh, if you'd like to support us, uh, we also have we'll have more of the uh, Orweller. Um, actually, the first edition of the uh, premium. Uh, George Orwell content will have been out before this one is. Um, so hope you and patrons hope you enjoyed spilling the Spanish beans. If you uh, are not a patron but want to hear that, uh, you know where to go: patreoncom hangover. Uh, Grace, what's your uh, Twitter feed? My handle is Grace Jackson. Yeah, all one word. Pretty sure. Simple. And uh, Alex Guns is uh, uh, A L E C K S underscore Guns. Uh, he has and, some great content. I can yeah. vouch oh, for that. Man. 
And uh, I'm, of course, uh, Matt Leck, M-A-T-T-L-E-C-H. And uh, follow the official at Lit Hangover uh, Twitter account, uh, or Literary Hangover. It's just at Lit Hangover. Just one character away from being able to fit Literary Hangover into a username. uh, And the YouTube. And uh, subscribe on YouTube. We're uh, we're chugging along on YouTube. We're gonna try to get monetized. They uh, rejected the first one apparently because they don't give a shit about. Well, obviously they don't give a shit about fair use. Um, but uh, hopefully one of these days they'll uh, they'll um, if we get enough if we get enough um, subscribers they're gonna monetize us just because they'll see they're leaving money on the table. <coughs> um, so check that out. Uh, thank you guys again. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>